know the deal. Stay past the credits and you get a special treat. Hmm? Ah! Hi, all you boys and girls out there in podcast land. The other day, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Radiolab, from WNYC. They were celebrating their 15th year of telling radio stories. Then I thought to myself, this month is my 15th year anniversary as well. Well, not telling audio stories, but getting paid to tell other people's stories through the medium of video. At the time, it was Don Ron Entertainment. If you're wondering where that name came from, don't ask. It's a long story. I'm sure I'll find some excuse to tell it on a future episode. The name quickly evolved to Cinematic Video, then Cinematic Studios, but then soon every other small video production company was using Cinematic in their name, so in 2009, I changed the name to Dare Dreamer Media, and it's been that ever since. Now, this summer also marks the 25th anniversary of my first film class at De Anza Community College, up the street and around the corner from Apple Computer in Cupertino, California. Wow, 25 years. Oh, man. It makes me feel kind of old. Yeah, I know I don't look it, but it's amazing what exercise, eating kind of healthy, some good jeans, and an $8 bottle of hair color won't do for a man. Anyway, I thought I would take this week to celebrate my 15th and 25th anniversaries respectively by playing some old episodes which tell the story of my first time on a film set and the story behind how I started my video business. Who am I kidding? It's Memorial Day weekend here in the States, and I just didn't have time to edit a full-blown new episode. But it is still my business and my film school anniversaries, so the timing could not have been better. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is a Radio Film School replay. Now, first up is a story from episode four of the podcast. It was part of the Your First Time episode. Enjoy. As can be expected, my filmmaking firsts are all special. I already shared with you the making of my first film with that Super 8mm camera that my father gave me. I remember the first time hearing dialogue I'd written being recited by actors. I remember the first time a video I made was screened for a large audience and I got to sit and listen to and see the people's reaction. Undoubtedly though, perhaps the most profound filmmaking first for me was the first time working on a real set. It was there where I didn't discover filmmaking, but where filmmaking discovered me. If you recall in the last episode, I mentioned how I was inspired to make a movie about my harrowing Atlantis Entertainment hip-hop mogul experiences at UC Berkeley. At the time that I had the revelation that that story would make for a great movie, I was working as a real estate appraiser in San Jose, California. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but there isn't a lot of creative outlets in the real estate appraisal business. Well, not unless you count the creativity we often were encouraged to use to come up with the appraisal values needed to make our clients' loans. But that's a whole nother story and a whole nother podcast. Anyway, I needed a creative outlet. And making SOS Atlantis was going to be it. It was impractical and too expensive, frankly, for me to enroll in traditional film school like AFI or USC. Side note, you filmmakers today don't know how amazing you have it. The kind of education you have at your fingertips is absolutely phenomenal. But I digress. So I did some research and I found the perfect solution. Deanza Community College in Cupertino, California, just right around the corner from Apple Computer. It was the highest rated film program at the community college level in the country. In my filmmaking 101 class, we each had to shoot a main project. Mine was a black and white music video set to Chris Isaac's Wicked Game. Remember that song? 
It was the story of a hapless waiter who has a dream about this beautiful woman who walks by his restaurant. Now he abandons his post to follow her. It was called Deja Vu, and all throughout the dream we see scenes and locations that match the photos, posters, and postcards established in the opening scene of his bedroom. It was my creative attempt to create a feeling of deja vu in the audience. Pretty clever, huh? Even the woman herself was made to look like the pale-skinned women in shades that hung on a poster over his bed. Do you remember those posters from the 90s? For life of me, I can't remember the name of the artist. The Z Gallery used to sell them all the time. Anyway, I'm getting off track. The dream ends when in an attempt to catch her before she gets on the bar train, he loses her then drops the rose he was hoping to give her. At that point, he springs up out of his dream. Which, when you think about it, is not the kind of thing that would make a person spring up. I mean, it's not like it was a nightmare or anything. I just really wanted to have a cliche spring up out of dream scene in my movie. In the film, we cut to the next day when he goes back into work. And who should be sitting at his table but the woman from his dream? Man, isn't that so cool? Not cliche at all. Now, a funny side note about directing... I remember two specific directing anecdotes from that shoot that completely and utterly elevated my appreciation for the subtlety and talent needed to truly act well, to truly act well. I had my friend Rochelle play the woman. She was an attractive blonde. And I had her wearing this cute, short-ish black dress and retro shades. The shades gave her a sort of blonde, wild Audrey Hepburn vibe. In one of the earliest scenes of the film, the mystery woman crosses the street. I noticed as we were rehearsing the scene, she'd be turning the heads of real guys passing by. So I wanted to capture one of these head turns on film, so I enlisted a fellow co-worker of mine to play some random guy that turns his head as she walks by. Yeah, he really couldn't pull off a realistic head turn. It was more like Commander Data from Star Trek Next Generation turning his head. It was very stilted. Funny enough, the other directing anecdote is also related to a head turn. It was the scene at the end of the film when the waiter sees the woman at his table back in the real world. It's supposed to end with him turning towards the camera as he breaks the fourth wall and he gives like a sort of like a um, flirtatious smile and a wink at the audience. Now really, how hard is that? Really just a smile and a wink. The guy cannot do it. I kid you not, it took 32 takes to get what I was finally halfway happy with. 32 takes. The problem was, I got this guy I knew from the dance clubs. Now, if you remember from the last main episode, I used to be a clubber. Well, this guy was really good looking. He always had the ladies asking him to dance. He had a very cool look. He fit the suit. That's a Brady Bunch reference. Google it. But he could not act to save his life. He basically had one look. Lost. Which was great for the rest of the film, but not so much so when I needed that nuance. Oh well, we live and learn. In the end, everything turned out fabulous. I got an A, and my teacher was really pleased. And if I do say so myself, I think mine was the best film in the class that year. Yeah, from what I remember, I'm pretty sure it was. Of course, that just could be my memory. Oh, by the way, if you want to see that short film, I dug it out of mothballs for you, and it's embedded on the blog post for this episode. It's a hoot. During my second quarter at Danza, I made another series of memorable films. I was showing such promise that my second quarter instructor recommended me for Deanza's prestigious fiction workshop program. This was a class where one student was chosen each quarter to write and direct a more substantial film, and the rest of the class had different roles, you know, producer, assistant director, script supervisor, etc., things like that. 
Up until my fiction workshop class, the work I'd done in film school was merely training exercises, prepping me for when I could make SOS Atlantis. I had a great time making those films, but if I stick with the whole love analogy, this was like the dating period. You know, that time before a guy is ready to really commit and say those three little words, I love you. My work on the fiction workshop set changed all of that. I was a grip. In fact, I called myself Super Grip. I was eager, animated, anticipated the needs of my crewmates and met those needs before they were even asked. Truth be known though, I had no freaking idea what a grip was. I was really more of a glorified PA. But I was part of a film crew on a real film set. And I loved it. The antics, the collaboration, the calls of action and cut by the director, the post-mortem discussions back in the classroom after the shoot, it was all infectious. There, my friends, is where it happened, where I finally fell in love with filmmaking. Once again, that was from episode four, Your First Time. One of my favorite podcasts I would consider a classic in radio film school history. Next is a segment from A Filmmaker's Journey, number 24, Using Your Art to Make a Difference. Here I talk about how I got my start shooting weddings, which many video producers do when they start in this business, and how I eventually transitioned to corporate and commercial work, specifically with a focus on cause-driven and inspirational stories. It was a bright and beautiful October afternoon when Harry and Yuka came over to my home to watch the video I had made for them. They were my first wedding video clients. My business was just about five months old. When I decided to start my video business, it was my original plan to do weddings until I could do quote unquote real videos, like music videos or feature films and that kind of thing. And because I wanted to be a narrative storyteller, when I took on Harry and Yuka's wedding, I naturally shot and edited it like a movie, giving it the name When Harry Met Yuka. I give it all the common rom-com tropes non-linear storytelling, love story reenactments, interviews with the bride and the groom, a Harry Connick Jr. score. Shh, don't tell anyone. Unfortunately, song freedom didn't exist at the time. So I, like a million other wedding videographers, use copyrighted music. I hope you all know now that if you do shoot weddings, you no longer need to do that, right? Songfreedom.com slash radio. I was only going to shoot weddings to pay the bills until I could be the next Spike Lee or Quentin Tarantino. Then something special happened. Harry and Yuka were coming over that afternoon to watch a short highlight video I made about their wedding. It was just seven minutes of the most memorable parts of the full video. And what happened was nothing short of magical. During those seven minutes, they laughed and they cried. Now, I had created videos for large audiences before, most notably funny videos for my church. And I experienced what it was like to have people respond to my craft. But there was something about this that was different. It was personal, potent. I realized that I had created something that could help strengthen the foundation for a whole family. That it could be the tool that either Harry or Yuka could go back to to reignite their love and passion or remember why they got together in the first place. 
And seeing such a wide range of emotions expressed over such a short period of time was, dare I say, a spiritual experience. I knew from that moment on that my talent had a bigger purpose in life. For the next five years, I poured my heart and soul into creating wedding films that moved my clients and made lasting impacts on all who saw them. But as is often the case with any artist, particularly one that is in a business, my craft and my business evolved. And in 2007, I turned my focus on doing corporate work, with a focus on the professional photography industry. I very much enjoyed the switch to corporate video work. The breadth of stories I could tell and the creativity my clients allowed me to bring to the table were refreshing. But it wasn't until 2009 that I found my true calling again. I had produced a series of keynote films for a long-time client of mine, a B2B service provider for professional photographers called Pictage. They had a new CEO who wanted to make a big splash at the yearly expo hosted by the company, his first as the new CEO. The theme for the expo that year was Dream, Create, Inspire. And I was charged with creating a series of three films, one for each of those themes. It was shortly after the process of making these films that I had another important discovery. It was during a long car ride with the family. My wife was listening to an audiobook of Martha Beck's Finding Your North Star, Claiming the Life You Were Meant to Live. On that trip, I was describing how amazingly fulfilled I felt during the making of these three films. As I gushed about the experience, my wife had a revelation. She said, You know, making films like these is your North Star. That inner desire at your core that drives your passion and contains the key to finding the life that you're meant to live. And she was absolutely right. I come alive as a filmmaker when telling inspirational or cause-driven stories. In many ways, even the wedding films I had used to make sort of fit into this category. So, in early 2010, I changed the focus of my company to telling these kind of stories. At your core as a filmmaker, or any kind of artist, what is it that you really want to do? If you think about it, you probably want to move people. In some way, you want to elicit an emotion, whether that's happiness, sadness, joy, anger, indignation, whatever. You want your art to have an effect on people. And I think the ultimate reward for any artist is knowing that her art truly makes a difference in somebody's life, if not the world. Unfortunately, there are times when we lose sight of that driving purpose. We lose sight of why we got into this craft in the first place. We get caught up in a life of paying the bills. Or we become obsessed with getting views, likes, and shares. We post a photo to Instagram and we get bummed if we only get two likes or two dozen. Some of you get bummed when you only get 200. Or you post a video to Vimeo or YouTube and you refresh the screen every five minutes hoping the number of views increases. But sometimes we need to sit back, relax, and just breathe. Breathe in and out. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves to breathe. This is the third film in that Dream, Create, Inspire film series I mentioned earlier. It is the Inspired film. It's a simple video, really. Just one man on a black background talking to the camera. 
It's a spoken word piece written by my wife. And although the audience this was intended for was professional photographers, I have no doubt that if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, these words are just as apropos to you. We sit in front of a computer screen day in and day out, press the shutter of a camera, click a button of a mouse, waiting, hoping for inspiration to strike, to distract us from our unspoken fears and to pull us out from our anxious thoughts. We sit in front of a computer screen, waiting, hoping. Breathe in and out. Sometimes you have to give yourself permission to breathe, to slow down, to listen, and to stop. We're all searching for something, for the power to influence, to create and to aspire and to live a life we love. But we never stop long enough to take care of ourselves, to remember why we started in the first place, to return to our first love, our passion, to the spark that started it all. We stop lighting our own match and let the fire grow dim. We live in the smoke trails of dying dreams. Focusing on our flaws and failures, paralyzed by our self-doubt, swinging wildly between paralysis and pride, waiting for something to change. But what would happen if we stopped searching and stopped waiting, stoked our fires with courage and conviction, focused on people instead of perfection, instead of going bigger, better, faster, quicker, Focus on done, people instead of perfection. Wow. Think about that line for a minute. It's so easy to hear it in the context of a spoken word film and react positively for a split second, but not really let it sink in. Focus on people instead of perfection. What would your art look like if that was your goal? What would your life be like if that were your objective, your North Star? The number of views and likes would not be quite as important to you if you knew your work was truly making someone else's world a better one to live in, right? I mean, what if someone emailed you and said, hey, I want to thank you for the beautiful wedding video you made for us. My husband and I were on the verge of divorce and we watched our wedding video again and decided to get counseling. Or what if someone wrote and said, hey, I just want to thank you for that PSA you made. Because of your video, we were able to raise the money we needed to start a new homeless shelter that will help take 1,000 homeless people off the streets. Or what if just one person emailed you to tell you that some video you made gave them hope and kept them from taking their life? Wouldn't you trade a million views of your video or 100,000 likes if you knew it could save just one life? Isn't making a difference more important than any other of those other superficial desires in life? All right, that's all I got this week. Next week, I'm hoping to have time to finish the next installment of my Superheroes and Cinema series. In celebration of the release of Wonder Woman, the next installment will cover the growing gender and racial diversity in superhero films. Of course, I reserve the right to not have the episode ready and either do something else or not do any episode at all. We'll see. Now, this is predominantly because, as I mentioned in my last episode, I've recently begun a new gig as the editor for the Freemio blog. That's editor as in a publishing editor, not a video editor. I'm really excited about where we're taking that blog, so if you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to blog.frame.io. We have some exciting changes coming down the pike. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at DareDreamerRon, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. 
Subscribe to us on iTunes if you like what you're hearing, and leave us a rating and review there. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to tracks are in the show notes. Until next time, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. I originally entered the end in the summer of 92. By the spring of 94, almost two years into the program, I was on track to be one of the next directors chosen to helm a class project. But as fate would have it, I was emancipated from my dreary real estate appraiser job to be an assistant marketing manager at Screenplay Systems, at the time makers of the Movie Magic software, in beautiful downtown Burbank. I bid a fond farewell to my fellow Fiction Workshop classmates and made the trek back to SoCal. But I would not let this little detour stop me from my destiny. I was going to direct a short film that I had scripted, by hook or by crook, and I knew just the story I wanted to tell. A romantic comedy in the vein of When Harry Met Sally. In fact, I called it My Black When Harry Met Sally. A story about what happens when a guy who's remained friends with his ex reveals something that turns one of his visits into a rather awkward situation. And I can neither confirm nor deny that this story is based on any personal experience. The name of the film was Just Friends. I remember our repartees regarding oh, yeah. SC versus Deanta. Right. Um, I'd rip you, give you a hard time. <laughs> right. SC here is a pretty good film school. It's um, okay. Let's get it on. Let's get it on. By now, you should recognize the unmistakable voice of my good friend and frequent radio film school guest, the Gale to my Oprah, the Fresh Prince to my Carlton, Mr. J.D. Cochran. Actually, I was just thinking about it. This year marks the 20th anniversary of a sh- Jeez. <laughs> Is that really? Yeah, 95, Accurate? dude. 95, wow. dude. 95. Wow. Um, every now and then I post a um, that picture. So I think maybe Angela took it, but there's a picture of me sitting on the floor kind of looking over looking over the script or something. I have like the... Screaming at Q, Q member, uh, crew members and... No, I'm, the whip. no, I'm sitting on the ground in my bedroom. I have sort of like, you know, the the 90s high top hair fro. I don't even know what you call it. <laughs> with, your cross, with your cross-color shorts on. <laughs> Actually, I didn't have cross-color shorts. I did have cross-color shorts, but I didn't wear them on the set. Ron would not let the cross-colors go. You were like the last brother I knew to get rid of them cross-colors, man. I surprised you remember that too. That's- I, oh, I remember that. That's that's part of your catalog, dude. That was like your Simpsons gear. If they drew you the Simpsons character, you'd have on you'd have a high top fade and some cross colors, shorts and shirt. Only the maybe like the ten or so black people in my audience even know remotely right. what we're talking about. Right. What what cross is cross colors? Oh, it's you know it's like Fubu. It's one of them hip uh, clothing lines that uh, were made by a black company to support the race. Right. La raza. Cross colors was big back in the '90s, man. I, huge. It was huge. It's like look at uh, you kind of get a taste of it and do the right thing. I mean, they're oh, kind of totally, cross yeah. colory, you know, clothes. Yeah, I don't know colors. if there's actual cross colors, but they had, you know, it's yeah. kind of that vibe. Oh yeah, no, the cross. I had the cross colored T-shirts and the shorts. That, that uh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're my favorite. We're rocking, rocking them hard in '95. Well, you know, I was trying to be like a filmmaker. You know, I was trying to be <laughs> a, a, a a righteous black filmmaker. Right, right. <laughs> Which. You know, my background is kind of funny. 
JD and I go on to reminisce a bit more, head into one of our usual tangents, until we get into the topic of auditioning for and actually shooting Just Friends. And I tell this story, uh, and, and I hope the audience uh, enjoys it, because I think, I don't know, there's something about the filmmaking process and shooting a film and collaborating that's, you know, that's an enjoyable moment and that creates a lot of powerful memories. And, you know, I think you know, to the extent that a person wants to get into this line of work just for fun, like, because I think there's no shame in, like, kind of doing this thing on the side. Like, I think a lot of people, particularly people who maybe follow my blog, feel like, like they have to do filmmaking to make a living. Like sometimes you can get more creative artistry out of it if you just do it for fun on the side. Which is at the time, this which is what it was for me. Like I was working at screenplay, but I wanted to do this film. And I remember the pre-production process. Like so, you're the DP, and I think I think technically you're a co-producer too. And then you introduced me to Angela Northington. Right. Right. Um, and she's doing some pretty cool stuff right now, too. I... Okay, at this point, I need to give a tad more context. JD and his wife, Yolanda, have this huge group of friends from USC Film School that they call The Click. All but two of them are African-American, and they've all gone on to varying degrees of success in Hollywood. Producers of major TV shows, writers, production heads. Yolanda herself was head of physical production at Alcon Entertainment, the company behind Book of Eli, The Blind Side, and the new Blade Runner sequel. She's now doing work for Netflix. This woman, Angela, that we're talking about is a producer for a major hip-hop media company. <laughs> I had only known her when I was at Berkeley. Anyway, JD tapped a number of these friends to help us out on the Just Friends shoot, and two of the people that he tapped were actors. Actors who I like to call the ones that got away. That is to say, two of the guys who auditioned for my little film, two people I did not pick, were James LeSure and J. August Richards. James LeSure co-starred with James Caan as Mike Cannon on the show Vegas, and he played Holly Robinson Pete's husband Mike on the show For Your Love. J. August played the vampire hunter Charles Gunn on WB's Angel and is currently playing Deathlock on Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. As can be expected, JD doesn't let me forget that I passed them up. Two people in your clique who auditioned for the film who I didn't choose... One was James LeSure. Brilliant decision. Brilliant decision. <laughs> hey, I they think have you're my being sarcastic. No, I'm being for real. I'm being sarcastic, <laughs> sarcastic and real. The same. Brilliant. Before the auditions, we were doing sides, and sides are where you like you take just a, an excerpt from the script that you have during the audition period to have people try out. And so, I remember for James for James audition because. If I recall, it was Angela who actually sort of like suggested James. Like, because I remember we had auditions at USC and we had people coming there. And then Angela's like, oh, you should try out James. And then we went to his, I think we, he auditioned either at her apartment or his apartment. Um, but he hadn't memorized the sides. Yeah, he had, t- <laughs> yeah, he had, yeah, he came in. I, I don't know. It wasn't at his apartment. I don't, I don't it was at it was, an apartment. So it I thought it was at the house that we shot at or, no, or somewhere. No, it was definitely at an apartment. Blah, 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 blah. We prattle on for another two minutes or so about where in the hell we auditioned. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we get off on. But not even knowing the lines, I thought he did a good job. I think it probably rubbed you the wrong way that he didn't. Right. The time well, do the lines, but the thing about James, he's a hell of an auditioner. This was my first time writing and directing a written piece, and it was actually a surreal experience. When I was at Dianz, I was part of the fiction workshop program, so I had worked on other directors' films, and so I was like familiar with the whole film set process. 
But like the first time I remember sitting in that classroom or whatever it was at SC and the first time hearing like words that I had written on a script being read by an actor, like it was a powerful experience for me. It, yeah. was, it was really moving because that I had never experienced that before. Um, but yeah, when, no, that's, that's, I mean, that's an incredibly important thing for filmmakers. When you see, hear actors do it, when you have people read it, you realize how much more weight everything has. Like, mm-hmm. like when I've shot films in the past, I'm like, man, if I'd have known that their performance was going to be so strong, you don't, you know, you don't need as much because you, right. when you get good actors are able to, 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 to take it there. And I think you probably felt that when they're reading your, your sides or whatever, you're like, wow, this, you know. And not necessarily you need to cut anything, but like, you know, it gave it that life that you said it was so powerful because, you know, when they're on page or just on page, but when they start to come to life, you can really appreciate it. Okay, yada, yada, yada. I bring up these stories because it's just interesting to see how, uh, you know, people, the, the little bit of degrees of separation from people who've gone on to become famous and right how close... I was to having like Jay August in a film I made or James Lesure right. in a film I made. To your point, though, there is a thing about chemistry and the way Jonathan just, you know, he won that role. It wasn't like he lost it or he just gave it away. It's like Jonathan went in there, fought for it, and got it. So that's right. why he got it, you know, and that's a good thing. Uh, it keeps the, it, 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 it helps keep that relationship with him and you pure and the actress that, you know, the main actress that he's working with. Uh, uh, Miata, so yeah, I, I think it worked out. You know, it worked out for what it was. But it is funny. To look back, you're like, man, <laughs> you know, Jay, you know, Jay and James on all these shows, you know, doing all this work, and it's like, so you know, close. What do you remember me as a director? Um, I, I thought that um, you can be honest. No, no, I, I will. Don't worry, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I know you will. I, 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 I think that... Um, if you can remember, it was a long time ago. Yeah, it wasn't like I sat down and wrote notes. I thought that... Um, I thought that... Uh, I could tell that you you were new to uh, to it because um, of some of the things that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Like, you could kind of pick up on, like, a director when they give somebody notes. Mm. If they're, like, if they're reading the actors. And, and, and again, I don't think you, I don't think you did a lot of that, if at yeah. all. But I, you, there's just certain things you kind of tell where it's like, oh, they're kind of new. Sure, like they sure. probably shouldn't be doing this, right. or even in coverage, like just certain ways that you know you take coverage, where you know you might, you know. And again, we were all. It wasn't like I was some you know 20 year old you know veteran, you know, so seasoned myself. But there are things that you know I, I could tell, like okay, he's kind of learning, he's new or whatever. But also, I have a strong belief in letting people grow and figuring things out. And, and they might be right in certain things that they do. The one thing that really impressed me, though, I thought the writing. I was really impressed with your writing. Oh, I cool, thought the, the writing was. Uh, I was impressed with the amount of writing that you were able to do in a short amount of time. I remember at one point you wrote like. You said, yeah, I cranked out these new 15 new pages, and it seemed like you did it in a, in like a, a, a day, which might not seem a lot to certain people, but I know for a lot of writers, they don't write that. You know, They can hack out 15 pages if they need to, but the stuff you generated wasn't, it was like, oh, okay, this is a viable, this is another good viable take. Sure. But I also know that that uh, Just Friends is kind of like your passion project. You know, right. I know it was really close to you, you being the writer, of course, and then going on to direct it. So I know a lot of that was... A lot of what you wrote was ingrained in you mm-hmm. from an emotional standpoint. So I know that helped a lot in terms of writing, making the writing go easier. But it was good. It was good. It was fun to work on it. And, uh, you know, to see your voice, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it, there's nothing worse than just to have somebody come out and say, oh, we're going to do a cool action film. 
was yeah right you know we're doing this little indie thing or whatever you're trying right. to do stuff you're not really attached to the material you're just trying to do cool stuff that you had seen another filmmaker do and you're just trying to emulate stuff where you i felt like there was definitely you know you you talked about when harry messiah but it was your voice in this project and it wasn't right. harry messiah it was a ron dawson joint you know you were doing your thing and even though that was the inspiration you know, referring to when Harry met Sally, right? You still did your thing, and you still, you know, did the writing. It was unique, and it was, you know, it wasn't the same, the exact same message as when Harry met Sally. So it was cool to see that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and, and you know, and it, you know, we were all enthusiastic about enthusiastic about being, uh, you know, making films at that point. You know, we're, mm -hmm. you know, we had that young nevite that young filmmakers do we're gonna right. change the world you know <laughs> I mean? so it's fun you know, you yeah, know i'm sure. like let's do it man what do you want to do let's right. let's get let's get let's get on may this little exchange be a lesson to all of you artists out there don't be afraid to go with your gut if you feel at your core a particular decision is best for the work you're creating yes you may be passing on someone who goes on to be the next leo dicaprio but in the moment you have to be prepared to live with your decision, accept the consequences, and laugh about it later if necessary. Remember, tragedy plus time equals comedy. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. Mm -hmm. Ah!